0: So, one of the main things that you'll find if you study the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and you do research, is that a lot of people are confused about Him. There was a recent study put out by Arizona Christian University, not far from my neck of the woods where I pastor a church plant in the Chandler, Phoenix area, and it was a 2021 study and it found that 58% of those who identify as Christians do not believe in the Holy Spirit. In the study, people would say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit is sort of this mystical floater. They're not really sure what to do with Him. Another study by Barna found that 6% of professing Christians have a biblical worldview. That's not a good stat. And if you do more research and you look at some of the studies put out by Ligonier Ministries, you'll find really quickly that in... Professing evangelicalism, people have very little clue about the Holy Spirit. You pair that with false teaching and general ignorance. If you go on Amazon, even right now, and you look up the subject of pneumatology, which is the study of the Holy Spirit, and you look at the top 100 books, they are not really helpful if you want to land on the bedrock of God's truth they're weird just to put it in layman's terms very weird i've got a couple of family members on the top 100 list and it seems like every cycle there's a new one coming out and they're all about encountering the spirit and they all have flames and or wind and different things and not very helpful Thankfully, God's given us His Word. And if we stick to that as the anchor for what we believe about the Holy Spirit, I can guarantee, because the Bible teaches it faithfully, that you will clearly understand the Holy Spirit's work. You'll stay on the tracks when it comes to the Holy Spirit's work. And then you'll even enjoy. The recognition of the Holy Spirit in your prayer life, talking about the Spirit's work with other people, it doesn't have to be a mystery, even though some aspects of His work are mysterious in the sense that you can't see all that He's doing, and yet you can be very confident that what you understand and know about the Holy Spirit is biblical, And being biblical on this topic is incredibly important. Not long ago, I was uh, doing a little bit of research on this topic, and I came across a video of this gal, a very famous singer from Bethel Church. Her name is Jen Johnson. She has written a lot of music with her husband, Brian, and they're very well-known, well-liked, and well-accepted. In the younger generation of the, the kind of Christian world. And, and they mix in everywhere. I mean, they're doing stuff with Shane and Shane and Phil Wickham, and they're, at, they're at, getting into different conferences now, and they're kind of all over. Uh, Jen was teaching on the Holy Spirit uh, a number of years ago, and she's on the stage, and she's sitting in a chair, and she says, and I quote, "'The Holy Spirit to me is like the genie from Aladdin.'" And the crowd doesn't respond like you just did. They laugh. They think it's great. And she continues on, and I quote, that's who he is to me. He's funny. He's sneaky. He's silly. And then she adds, he's wonderful. He's like the wind. He's all around. So a very dangerous cocktail of omnipresence, which is true. Even the word sneaky mysterious? Do you always know the infinite ways that the Spirit of God is working? No. But sneaky? I don't think I would describe it as that. Silly? Most certainly not. That's irreverent and unholy and blasphemous. He's like the wind? Yes, I know. The Bible says that. So what we find often with the teaching on the Holy Spirit that is popular is worse than just blatant heresy there will be little kernels of truth in it. And perhaps that's the most dangerous deception of all. It was Spurgeon who said, uh, the real goal in Christian discernment is not discerning right from wrong, but discerning right from almost right. And that's really where the study of the Holy Spirit becomes incredibly important. We can do better biblically, and we ought to for the sake of our worship. We're going to cover three categories here. First, the deity of the Holy Spirit. Second, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. And third, the work of the Holy Spirit. There are outlines if you'd like to fill in the blanks along with the uh, PowerPoint, or if you're more of a, a listening learner, then you can do that as well. And I'm going to try to motor through these as best as I can so that you have it all. The first aspect that I want us to settle in on, is the deity of the Holy Spirit. I'll just preface it with this true statement. He is God. He's fully God. And He's part of what we call in Christianity the Trinity. Some of you are going to be really familiar with that word, and others, maybe you're a newer believer here at Grace, and that's a concept or a theological truth you're really exploring and trying to understand better. To put it simply, the Trinity is The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, they're three in one, and each member of the Godhead is both most certainly understood as deity, but also there is a personhood aspect. What I mean by that is Christ, He became flesh and dwelt among us. Many times people have no issue understanding that. Yeah, Jesus came. Okay, and then you think of the Father, and even in the term we use, you can think in your mind and grasp the the personhood of God the Father in a sense, and you can understand that picture because we all in some way have a Father. But then the Holy Spirit gets this sort of uh, participation trophy, (laughs) sort of relegated off to the side, like we're not sure what to do with you. You're, You're God, but are you a form of God? Or are you just sort of the Spirit of Christ? I mean, what are you? What do we do with you? Well, the simple truth is we just need to look in the Bible at what the Word of God says about the Holy Spirit. R.C. Sproul wrote this, The doctrine of the Trinity is not a contradiction but a mystery, for we cannot fully understand how God can exist in three persons. And so what you do is you bring the Holy Spirit back into your theological framework and you say this is, in a sense, a paradox of sorts or a mystery that God in three persons is the Trinity, And the Holy Spirit is an equal part of the Godhead, so I view him that way. And while I can't understand all the time in my finite human mind how God could be in three persons and what the Trinity is, we can accept that it's not a contradiction, it's a mystery. And I would propose to you this truth if God was completely comprehensible for you and I as humans, he would not be God. The incomprehensibility of God and The doctrine of the Trinity is what's so humbling, isn't it? That you and I will never fully figure God out, but He's revealed to us enough that we can know Him personally and intimately in that relationship that He has offered to us through Christ. There is a way to be close to God and yet still say, wow, there's so much I won't even know about you until glory. And that's what makes heaven so exciting in some ways. If you had to make a list of all the reasons you can't wait for the eternal state or the kingdom of God and all of its glory, it would certainly be, I want to know more about my God, that He would be more comprehensible. It's something to look forward to. But we do have to accept and understand that the Holy Spirit is equally and fully God. The Holy Spirit is God in the Old Testament is made quite clear. There should be no confusion about this. Let me just walk you through 10. We see Him in Genesis 1-2 hovering over the waters before creation. We see Him in Exodus 35 filling certain men under Moses. In Numbers 27, He's empowering Joshua to lead Israel. In Judges 6, He's coming upon Gideon. In Judges 13, He's coming upon Samson. In 1 Samuel 16, He's rushing upon David when He was anointed king. The Holy Spirit's very active in the Old Testament as God. In 1 Samuel 16, He's departing from Saul. In 2 Peter 1.21, Peter describes the Spirit's work as carrying along the prophet's. In Ezekiel 2, he's enabling Ezekiel to prophesy. And as Isaiah 61, we see the prophecy of the Spirit to one day rest on the Messiah. It is not difficult to see. The deity of the Holy Spirit, very obvious in the Old Testament. He's incredibly active. And there's more to all of this, but... I couldn't sit here for four hours, but there are other aspects you can take a deep dive into, and the book does that. But I wanted to give you at least just some overall talking points to understand. If we were to then jump to the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, He's mentioned almost a hundred times in just Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Do you think He's important? Do you think His work is pivotal? Yes. In Matthew one twenty, he conceived Jesus in Mary's womb. That's deity. Who or what can conceive the God-man in the virgin's womb? Only God. In Matthew 3, he's present at Jesus' baptism. In John 14.16, he was sent by the Father, In John 14, 26, He teaches the disciples and brings to mind all the things that Christ had spoken. I remember when I was uh, first converted and I I wanted to understand the Holy Spirit's work and and get it right because most of what I had believed, even though I had the right uh, verses, I always had the wrong interpretation, I wanted to know what this actually meant. Does that mean that I'm going to be walking around and if I read verses once then the Holy Spirit's going to bring them to mind as this kind of a superpower, you know, what happens. And when you study contextually what's happening there, Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to go. It's to your advantage that I do. You think, what? It's, It's to our advantage that you, our Lord, you leave us? Yes, because the Helper is going to come. The Holy Spirit's going to come, and He is going to disclose to you, and He's going to bring to mind all the things I have spoken. He's talking to the disciples directly about their role in writing Scripture. That some decades later, after He's gone, they're going to write with perfect accuracy that the Holy Spirit is going to breathe through the pens of men with perfection to give the revelation of God to His people. And that they have nothing to worry about. That it will be the Spirit of God working through them. All of that declared by the Lord. That there's more to come. And He's going to do this through them. Only deity can do that. In Hebrews 9, 14, He's described as eternal. In Ephesians 4, 30, the Holy Spirit has the power to seal believers so nothing can steal your salvation. Who can keep the believers secure but God alone? No one. Only deity. Can do such a thing in 1 Corinthians six nine to 20 we're told that he is the we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit he is the, the resident inside of the believer that's deity and in titus 3 five beautiful passage we see the Holy Spirit presented as one who has the power to make believers new and wash you clean. It's not hard to find the Holy Spirit operating as deity across the whole of Scripture. One of my favorite kind of slam-dunk passages for the deity of the Holy Spirit is in Acts chapter 5. Why don't you turn your Bible there with me? And this one, if you've never been to this passage before, I always want to be careful, even at Grace Church, of saying, now I know you've all heard this before, and I know you've all heard this a million times, because there's always a percentage in the room, especially post-COVID, when you guys had a legitimate revival here, uh, that new believers are saying, hey, I haven't heard this a million times. I've only heard it once or twice. Tell me again. I remember when uh, my wife was first a believer, and I'd grown up in church, even though it was a, a bad theological church. And I asked her one time, you know, about a certain Bible story. And I said, ah, oh, you've probably heard that a bunch of times. And she said, no, 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 no. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I, I'd love to hear it. And, and I remember telling her again, and I felt sort of loathsome inside as I just told her the story for probably the 18th time she's heard it. And one day she says to me, hey, so you say this a lot to me. And I've heard you say it in church. I'm like, uh-oh. She says, you say, now, I know you've heard this before. And you sometimes in the pulpit have said, now, I know you all have heard this a thousand times. She said, never forget that I didn't grow up like you. And even though you were in heresy and blasphemy, you still had the Bible stories that I never had. (laughs) And she said, sometimes I just, I just want to hear it again because I haven't heard it that much. It's in a way I miss God's word because I didn't know what I was missing. And so, just tell me the story again. And there's always people in the church like me who want to hear it again. And so in Acts chapter 5, what will become the longer you're around the church, a common story of lying. Verses 3 and 4, we have Ananias and Sapphira. They had put on a big show of generosity, we're going to give a lot of money. And, you know, we've just given it all, all that we've purposed and all. It's a big show. But they keep back some of the money. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to who? The Holy Spirit. And keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You can read it with me. You have lied to, not to men, but to God. One of the most helpful passages to see that the Holy Spirit is very much involved in the picture of the New Testament church. He ought to be acknowledged, recognized, even relished in as God. We appreciate His work. We need His work. We are reverent of His work. And there's a whole other aspect. You could just teach entire sermons on grieving the Holy Spirit and the correlation of sin and grieving Him, and that you can find in Ephesians chapter 4. There's so much that we can understand beyond just what I've given you, but I hope that is a helpful framework, that He is God. He's not the low man on the totem pole, if you will, or the ranking system of the Trinity. He's, he's not the afterthought, like, oh, the Holy Spirit got sent by the Father. He's sort of just hanging out, but what we're really waiting for is Jesus to return. What I'm really focused on is the Father. People say, well, we want to be careful because the Holy Spirit's role, and He exists to bring glory to Christ, so we don't want to give Him too much attention. I would say to be careful with that type of maybe false dichotomy, in that you want to be careful about appreciating and honoring the work of God the Spirit, because God the Spirit exists to help you glorify Christ, I would say that when you are honoring the work of the Spirit, and you're thanking Him for His work in your life, and you're even praying and asking Him to help you glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, that you're very much right in line with what the Bible would have you do. This is a good thing. You're not more biblical when you ignore the Holy Spirit and say, well, He really only exists to bring glory to Christ, so we don't want to make a whole big deal about Him. Now, I know there's other extremes where people will sing songs on and on and on. Holy Spirit, come. Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Holy Spirit, come. We just want you here. Come into this place. And all of that needs addressing as well. And so let me run down that rabbit trail just for a minute or two. If the Holy Spirit is God, then he is omnipresent. So, who was in this place first? Who came into whose presence? You were second. I was second. So, when people sing, Holy Spirit, just come. Or I don't even know if they're singing. It's usually something on the mic where the song is going and they're playing and then they just do the ad lib. We just welcome you and all this stuff. You don't want to hear that. We need to get a better understanding of the Holy Spirit and stop acting like He's this tiptoeing eggshell-walking, second-rate deity that, oh, just fingers crossed if we welcome Him enough and we just beg Him to come and we sing it enough and there's a pad and everyone's feeling the feels that He'll finally show up. He's in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And when we gather together as the church, the called-out ones, He's in us all and corporately as one, In our worship, together, He's here. He's omnipresent. There's no question about where He is and what He's doing. So, What would be a better way to acknowledge Him in a a corporate gathering? You might thank Him for His work. Holy Spirit, we recognize that without You, we will not see what You would want us to see. We cannot understand the precious Word of Christ without Your help, that our hearts will not be changed, that we cannot be sanctified apart from You. So we ask that through the teaching of Your Word and the worship of Christ today, that You would change us from the inside out. That's a good prayer. That's a biblical prayer. Holy Spirit, would you convict us of sin today? Would you sharpen our minds? Would you open up our eyes to our blind spots? Would you chip away at the callousness in our hearts because of our patterns of sin? Recognize His work as though He's already going to do it because He is. Recognize His presence as though He's already there because He's there. It's a reframing of so much. And it'll also save you some time in the worship service where we don't have to go on for 19 minutes begging Him to come. We can get to more biblical teaching so we can understand Him. He's not a bench warmer, He's not a minor, minor leaguer. He's not a footnote. He's not the understudy. He's not a backup. He is and always has been fully and equally God. Second, the person of the Holy Spirit, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. As an equal part of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit is a person, and I'd love to add, based on what the Bible presents, He's also personal. He's not a distant deity, the same way that God in His providence, the definition really of God's providence is that He's intimately acquainted with all the details of your life, that your Father in heaven cares about you, And Christ, of course, it's very common for the believer to feel close to Him in the sense that He has bought you and paid for your atonement. He, you might say, loves you and knows you, and you feel close to Him as you read the Gospels, and you get to know Him more, and you spend time within His ministry. Yes. But also, we ought to think of the Holy Spirit as a person and personal. Each and every day, You need His filling work. That He might bear fruit through you. I don't know about you, but I need desperately the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of love, joy, and peace, and patience with five young children. For you, I live in Arizona. We have much less traffic and patience in the mornings. Self control, faithfulness, gentleness. There's one. That's hard. I find it easier to be a hammer. It's my default. We need the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. He is both person and personal. You could think of it this way the Father loved you and called you his own. That's 1 John 3 1. The Son. Christ died for you and has called you to believe, that's John eleven twenty five 25 to 26, and the Spirit of God fills you and transforms you as you follow Jesus. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6, 11 and Ephesians 5, 18. He is an equal and active part of the Godhead, a person and personal. And obviously there's more to God's work and His attributes and all of the elements of theology proper than that short summary, but I want you to picture those truths as sort of brushstrokes that paint the picture of the Trinity in action on your behalf. The Holy Spirit then as a person means something very important for believers today. He is not an it. I know there's some who will call Him that out of ignorance or it's just a, a slip of the tongue because they view Him very abstract because He is the Holy Spirit. But God also is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. So, we want to be very careful to create ideas in our mind that He's, again, an abstract. And so, you'll hear people say, you know, the Spirit, and then they'll go on to describe Him, and then they'll say something like, it, about Him. He's not an it, If you were to look at John 16, and if you want to jot this down as something to jump into later, John 16 is a beautiful chapter, and it'll contain the job description of the Holy Spirit from Christ Himself. And in that particular text, you'll see repeated references to the Spirit's work that would destroy the notion that He is some mystical force. Some people view him that way, as an abstract. We would never call the Father an it, even though he's spirit. We would never call Christ an it. And we ought to then the same view the Holy Spirit as a person. He, when he comes, the Spirit of truth, he will glorify me. Jesus says. He was sent from heaven to continue God's work in and through the believer. He is not an it. He is your helper. He is the advocate. He is the one whom you and I need to fulfill our ministry. And by the way, just as a reminder, we desperately need to understand that His work is so pivotal because we are, in a sense, plan A, are we not? The church is still here. Plan A, as in the plan of God for evangelism. God will do the saving, but Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so who are the mouthpieces? You. Who are the witnesses? You. And so we need the Spirit of God to be at work within us and through us to fulfill the mission of God that He has given us do. He's not an abstract it. He is the one who helps you fulfill your earthly purpose as salt and light. There's been some deviations in church history regarding the Holy Spirit that some people will adopt today. The first that I want to put before you, I just have two, is Sibelianism and its namesake, Sibelius, taught that the Holy Spirit is not a person but an impersonal force and just an expression of God. According to Him, God is one person who simply expresses Himself in three different ways. That would be heresy. Sabellianism holds that God the Father was expressed in creation, the Son through redemption, and then the Spirit is expressed in sanctification. And a lot of people say, hey, that sounds okay. That'll preach. That'll preach. That's wrong. And it's not biblical, even if it sounds clever. And eventually this belief was declared heresy because it denied the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So regardless of what you and I think or some popular false teacher says or how clever they'll make it sound and seem, if you have a Holy Spirit who is not a person, you have a false view of the Spirit of God. The second, Arianism. Arianism. This view denied the deity of both Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So opposite of getting the personhood wrong, you don't want to get the deity wrong either. Arianism taught that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were both created beings and not of the same substance or nature as God the Father. And this is a dangerously heretical view. It demeans both Christ and the Holy Spirit... If you just read that definition and then used your creative, intuitive mind and made a few leaps, you could quickly dabble in Mormonism, couldn't you? And some other false religions. When we start demeaning Christ, and He's sort of just a, another version of what you could be, you could be gods, you could be just like Him. He's little more than kind of an older brother. You run headlong into false doctrine. It was an early church council that declared that also as heresy, as men got together and said, this is not a hallmark of biblical teaching. It's out. If you teach this, you're out. And so we do have a lot of help from church history as well to back up or really just to support what the Bible teaches. And we need that clarity because Satan ever works to confuse both the church and distract us with ignorant teachings, but also the lost, and to keep them in false teaching. The personhood of the Holy Spirit is expressed through Scripture, and we can understand some aspects of that. Some of these would be more prevalent at the time of the early church, and in Jesus' ministry, and others, of course, still today, through other aspects, and I'll explain that in just a moment. But we have first the clarity of His personhood and what Jesus says about Him. Comforter, helper, advocate. He's an active person, an active part of the Trinity. Number two, in Ephesians 4.30, we see that the Holy Spirit has feelings. He can be grieved. That should matter to us. And it doesn't need to be so mystical and emotional in the sense that some people today, and this is prevalent, if you've never heard of this, then this happens a lot, maybe more than you'd ever know or have thought of. But in the charismatic movement, and in a lot of these modern twists on it, you'll hear this. I have a particular family member who's younger, and he talks like this a lot. He says, I, I just, I don't want to hurt the Lord. And I would say, yeah, me too. I, I don't want to hurt him. What do you mean by that? He's just, oh, he's so hurt. And he, he, you want to picture him when you're sinning. He's just in the corner. And, and I picture him as just in, he's in the fetal position and he's just so hurt. And, he's, and it's me that's doing it to him all over again and he's having flashbacks and PTSD of the cross. And I'm like, whoa, we just left the reservation. Hey, hold on now. I don't want to hurt the Lord, Okay. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit, but now you've made Him into a frantically fearful and anxiety-filled toddler in the corner who's just scared of whatever is happening. We want to be so careful to present the feelings of the Holy Spirit biblically and accurately. He is grieved. Yes. You have very clear illustrations in Scripture and aspects of God's anger. We can understand that. What that's supposed to help you understand about His personhood is how He feels about your sin. And it should cause us all to repent. And we should be quicker to confess sin because we understand we've grieved the Spirit of God. But then there's more to it, not just, oh, I'm so sorry, you're so sad. But know that He's called us, bought us, gifted us, and purposed us to live for the glory of Christ, and when we don't, we grieve Him. And it's a helpful reminder of how God feels about our sin, and it's a quick call back to our role and our purpose as those who follow Christ. He does have feelings, but we want to be sure we're expressing and understanding the way God feels accurately. In 1 Corinthians 2.10, He reveals. In 1 Corinthians 2.11, He searches. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, He indwells. Just back-to-back-to-back truths from the Apostle Paul in that section that is something you should read and study undoubtedly later. In John 14.26 in 1 Corinthians 2.13, we see the Spirit of God teaches. In Romans 8.26 and 27, one of the great reminders that you are being prayed for, that God the Holy Spirit intercedes for you when you don't know what to pray. Oftentimes people think, you know, as evidence for tongues, I heard this argument many times over and still do, that the Spirit, you know, my tongues, when I just say, whatever, it's just the groanings too deep for anyone to understand. It's just the intercession of the Spirit coming out of me. No, that's not at all what is happening. The Spirit of God speaks with clarity. He works with clarity, and He is interceding for you. He's not babbling gibberish through you. It should be a comfort to you that the Holy Spirit is praying for me. He's my helper. Absolutely. That should give you great confidence that you're never alone, that God is always with you, that the Spirit of God, when you're a true believer, is working in you and through you, and you can trust which is why in the next verse, verse 28, Paul says, all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So the perspective we're given in Scripture has a purpose. We don't need to take it and run in wild directions with it. In Acts 13, verse 2, we see that the Spirit speaks. He's active in Scripture, speaking. Today, you say, how does He speak? He speaks through the Word of God. God. And people often say, well, what do I do then, Kosti, with the thought that I had? And then it ended up being right on. Like I thought of this person when I was praying and then they ended up having a hard day. The Holy Spirit spoke to me, didn't he? No. No okay, but what about that time that I was in this situation and I remembered this verse that I had memorized? And I, it just came to mind and I knew what to say. The Holy Spirit, I feel like God told me to tell them that verse at that moment. Was he speaking? He spoke to me. I know he did. I feel like he did. I heard it in my head. Here's what I would say we need a better theology of. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says there at the end that we have the mind of Christ. Stick with me here. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20 tells us that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Ephesians 5.18 says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. So if, hypothetically speaking, a believer has the mind of Christ, has been the temple of the Holy Spirit, God Himself has taken residence, is filled with the Holy Spirit and the Word of Christ, what in the world do you think is going to come to mind in situations that God has providentially put you in? You're tapping the well that's already there. You have the mind of Christ. Is it not entirely possible that as believers filled with the Spirit, we would be praying as those who are one with the body, and we would then in our prayer life be thinking about other believers. And certainly there'll be people you pray for that have the best week of their life. And then there's others who you were praying for who had a rough time. I would not mystify this so much. It's objective and clear. You have the mind of Christ. You have the Spirit of God inside of you. You have the Word of God dwelling richly within you. These sort of things are going to happen time and time and time again, and then we have to understand, and I don't have time to go into this, the providence of God. And then now, for a moment, just think of Galatians 5, and where Paul says in Galatians 5, he starts at verse 16 and keeps going up until through the fruit of the Spirit, and he says, walk by the Spirit, and you won't carry out the deeds of the flesh. What is the word walk by? Mean. It's the Greek word peripateo. It means to be busy about the things of the Spirit of God. So you tell me, if I'm filled with the Spirit of God, I've got the mind of Christ, I'm filled with the Word of God, and I'm busy about the work of the Spirit of God, what in the world is going to come out of me most of the moments that I'm involved with other believers? Truth. God speaks through His Word. He fills you up with His Word, and then that comes out. You don't need to worry. Was that you, Lord? If it's the truth of Scripture, it already was you, Lord. Thank you for your Word. Now I'm going to minister that. You say, okay, but what about those subjective moments where, you know, what do I do with this and what do I do with that? I think we need a better theology of God's will. That you just walk in obedience. You be submissive and filled with the Spirit. And wherever you go and whatever you do, God will providentially work through your life. That's it. The Word of God is clear, and He speaks through the Word. He has a will in Acts 15, and He bears witness to our spirits that we are children of God. Romans 8.16 says that. And so we have the personhood of the Spirit. There's so much more that we could go into, but I need to move on now to our final section. The work of the Spirit. I've alluded to some of these. I'm going to give you about six. I had more, but there's only time for six. These are six particular areas that I just thought deserve mention for you to get going on. First is regeneration. Regeneration also translates the idea of rebirth or renewal. This is the Spirit of God making you new. Titus 3 verses 4 to 7, but when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we did in righteousness, but in accordance with His mercy. And then the Bible says, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God is directly involved with your regeneration. People often say, you know, I, I decided to follow Jesus. I chose Christ. You did. It's good. After he did spiritual heart surgery to make you able and desirous to decide to follow Jesus. The Spirit of God regenerates you, and then you say, I want to follow you. I hate my sin all of a sudden. I want more of you I want to be obedient to you. Where does that come from? The Spirit of God through regeneration. The idea of being born again. We're digging in again this morning with Dr. Lawson. We did last week for part one on what it means to be born of God. The idea here being the Second Corinthians 5.17 picture that, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The Holy Spirit is directly involved with that. The second aspect of his work that's very important for you to understand is Sanctification. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, Paul is describing this horrid picture of sin, and he's listing things, and then he says, such were some of you, but now you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The Holy Spirit is sanctifying you. So right now, if you are wrestling with besetting sins, if you have an issue or a struggle with patience, with the way you talk, with the way you think, you know, you ought to just get it set right now in your mind that it never ends, which is why we long for heaven. I remember hearing Pastor John remark on that one time as an older seasoned man. He made reference to the fact that he can't wait for heaven because he's just so sick of sin, even his own it's very telling that when older seasoned men say, I just continue to loathe my sin. And yet you say your, your life is, is holier than it was and more pure than it was and you've become more strengthened in the truth than you ever have. And, and as you grow, well yeah, because Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. So yeah, in a way, you aren't who you used to be, but you're still not who you're going to be. Sanctification is progressive. And the Holy Spirit is the one you go to. You could acknowledge Him in your prayer life life, and say, Holy Spirit, purge my heart of these desires. Cleanse my mind of those thoughts. The mind is the last great battleground. You and I, the longer we're around the church, we'll we can put it on, can't we? We look the part, sound the part, but no one knows what's going on up here. This is the last great battleground, and so you need the renewing of your mind. You and I may not sin like we used to outwardly, but inwardly, this this needs help. And the Holy Spirit does His work in the mind sanctification is an encouragement for those of you that say, oh, I hate my sin. Will this ever change? Yes, if you're truly born of God, you will progressively change day by day, growing more and more into the image of Christ. There's three aspects of sanctification that I want to just talk to you about or put in front of you. I'll do these quickly. I don't know if they're... There they are. Yeah, they're on the screen. Uh, Positional is a great comfort. It just is the idea that you have gone from sinner to saint. Positionally, you have been sanctified. This is why Paul and the other New Testament writers will call the church saints. Some of you on your days where you're really wrestling with sin, think, I don't want to read the parts that say I'm a saint. I'm not. Well, positionally, you are. God is seeing right now the true believer through the lens of the righteousness of Christ. Positionally, if you're in Christ, you have been sanctified, past tense, positionally, you're a new creation. It's very important for your confidence. You were the target of the Father's wrath, and now you are the recipient of Christ's righteousness, positionally. But progressive means that you're not going to be perfect right away. That's why you need God's Word. That's why even this is a means of God's grace for you. The fellowship of the saints, the confession of sin, the Lord's table, the preaching of His Word, the singing of His truth, all of it designed to sanctify you. It's why many times you'll not necessarily want to come to church. I know a lot of you still will, but sometimes you'll not and you'll, you'll just be wrestling with things and then you'll leave and you'll get in the car. You'll look over at your spouse who to deal with you all morning and say, I'm so glad. And they finish, yeah, I'm so glad you came today. I know you are. That's why I kept telling you, just keep your mouth shut till after church. The Lord's going to do a work in you. You know, that kind of idea. People leave church and they say, what? I needed that oh why well because you've been out in the world all week you've been struggling with sin and he uses this to progressively grow you you don't come to church because you better or else god's gonna or you have to because it's the law you you come gather with the church because first of all you get to it's a privilege but oh lord help us you need to i need to don't we we need the church And as a free plug, The Church is Essential, releasing on July 28th and going to be previewed here. (laughs) See, that wasn't the Holy Spirit. That's just my own brain causing problems and derailing us. Finally, it's perfect. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a perfect sanctification coming when we meet the Lord. Sin is no more. Pain is no more. Death is no more. Sickness no more. You're not going to spend time in purgatory working off the rest of it. You're going straight into the presence of God. Paul says to the Colossians, when Christ who is our life is revealed, we also will be revealed with him in glory. There's this joyful moment at the coming of Christ, First Peter, you read through that letter, and Peter keeps making these eternal perspective references. Why? Because the church is being persecuted. They're no doubt wrestling with sin. He has to tell the husbands to live with their wives in a sensitive way. He has to remind the wives how they're to operate. He reminds the church at large to be respectful of governing authorities and yet walk in obedience to Christ. And in all of that, he points to this glorification that's coming. That's what you and I can look forward to, that our sin has no more power over us. You don't have a couple more payments to make. There will be a perfect sanctification to come. Illumination, another aspect of the Spirit's work. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit. This is the, the, the carnal man, the carnal mind, the man without the Spirit of God. He cannot accept the things of the Spirit. They're foolishness. They can only be discerned through the Spirit. Nothing happens outside the Spirit's power. Pastor John illustrates it this way. He says, "'God must open the eyes of our understanding "'before we can truly know and rightly interpret His truth. "'Only the Spirit can illumine Scripture. "'Just as the physically blind cannot see the sun, "'the spiritually blind cannot see the sun.'" Both lack proper illumination. Martin Luther once said, "'Nobody who has the Spirit of God "'sees a jot of what is in Scripture.'" The Spirit is needed for the understanding of all Scripture and every part of Scripture. Illumination. You need Him. Before you read the Word, pray and ask the Holy Spirit for help. That's one of the best things you can do. Pray before reading the Word and ask God the Spirit to give you understanding and a sharp mind. Next, baptizing. This one gets confused eight ways from Sunday. But 1 Corinthians 12, 13 is really simple and really clear. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. You are unified with the body through the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some second blessing or second event where you speak in tongues or you go down to some altar and some weird man or woman puts their hand on your head and everyone falls and, and now you're, you're going to be baptized and people will take all of the different instances of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. which, If you look at the book of Acts, and I don't have time to show you my chart on this, but I really like charts there are four particular, very incredible, unique moments where the Spirit of God falls and tongues explodes. And it's a sign to these unbelieving Jews. And the Gentiles get it too, in some cases, to show the Jews, yeah, you're not it. You're not the only group here. I'm bringing many people from every nation, tribe, and tongue together. And the Spirit is pouring it out there. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, though, is not this outpouring of tongues everywhere. The baptism is being brought into spiritually, the body of Christ. And in the early church, when the church was starting, the baptism was there, evidenced in some cases by tongues, because the church was just starting. So you had both a filling and a baptism of the Spirit happening at the same time. And so, in some cases, people are both saved and they are filled. And as a sign in that particular time, They're given tongues in other languages, and the gospel is going forth. So, we want to be so careful taking a theological truth and then historical narrative in the book of Acts and then prescribing it to modern audiences to say, hey, so I know you're saved, but have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit the way they were at Pentecost? Well, Pentecost was prophesied by Christ, it was a one time event. You couldn't redo it if you had 10 more lifetimes. It was a singular moment where the birth of the church happened. Never mind the fact that tongues is a whole other topic we could get into where it was a known languages. People could actually understand what you were saying. And if they couldn't, because it was in a different language, there was actual interpretation. We want to be so careful putting burdens on people. And if you go down that trail, you'll often be called a Pharisee, and you're just being, putting the Holy Spirit in a box and all of these things. I would always argue that the Pharisees are the ones adding to Scripture. The Pharisees were the ones taking God's Word and heaping more burdens on the people than God's Word even put. And so we want to be so careful with this one. Fifth, the filling. The filling the filling of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is what's his will, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, some of your translations say dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing present active verb, be being continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So baptism is a one-time event. There is one baptism, but there can be many or multiple fillings in which day by day the Holy Spirit fills you. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's evidence, and the Bible points to this evidence, You'll be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So the singing church is a Spirit-filled church, not just a tongue-talking church, as some would insist. Making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks, a thankful church is a Spirit-filled church. And for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, a submissive church is a Spirit-filled church to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is to be monopolized by Him. That would be one of the, just the best definitions or most simple definitions that you'll find out there. It is to be monopolized by Him. I love a couple of different illustrations and quotes here. I want to give you One in particular by Pastor John, and then an illustration about D.L. Moody. Uh, MacArthur says, Being filled with the Holy Spirit is walking thought by thought, decision by decision, act by act, under the Spirit's control. The Spirit filled life yields in every step to the Spirit of God. So helpful. You're under His control. That's what it means to be filled. There is a well known story about the evangelist D.L. Moody. He was coming into a town, there was a big service in England, and this pastor protested, you know, why do we need this Mr. Moody? Why do we need him for our service? He's uneducated and inexperienced. He didn't like Moody much. Who does he think he is anyway? And then he says, Does he think that he has a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? And then an older pastor stood up, much wiser and said, no, but the Holy Spirit sure has a monopoly on Mr. Moody. That's the picture. Just going about your life filled, controlled, monopolized, purposed in the work of God because of the Spirit of God. And finally, His sealing work. His sealing work. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 in him you also after listening to the message of truth the gospel of your salvation paul says having believed you were sealed in him with the holy spirit of promise having believed you were sealed in him you were sealed in him so nice i wrote it twice sealed it's a word that is is a mark You could say it this way. You've been branded by God. You are His. Nothing and no one can snatch you out of God's hand when you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. You are His. God never loses His sheep. And the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge or a promise. The idea there when Paul says that word is the idea of a down payment. In other words, it's the now but not yet. You can look forward to glory and you can have confidence today in your standing before God. This is the assurance of salvation. It is eternal security. You are His. You always will be His. You are bought and sealed. The Holy Spirit does that. So what is the practical implication there is? Well, first, You don't save yourself, praise God, because you never could, and you don't keep yourself saved, praise God, because you never can. The Holy Spirit is the one holding on to you. So practically speaking, you might even pray and thank Him in your prayer life. Thank you for sealing me. Thank you for securing me. Thank you for the confidence I can have today as I walk in grace, even though I will sin, and we all stumble in various ways, that you are holding me and keeping me secure. That is a good and right and biblical prayer life. And isn't it evidence of the Spirit's filling to be thankful. So thank Him for His work in sealing you. All of what we've covered here, really just the tip of the iceberg, you've got still the convicting work of the Spirit, the grieving, which I mentioned briefly, you've got the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the unity of the Spirit. You've got a lot that you could still uh, jump into and it would it would take you months and even years to enjoy and to master all of it. But one takeaway I think that is very clear here. If the Holy Spirit is God, and He is, and He is a person, and He is, and His work is clear and powerful, and it's working in us and through us, then should we not honor His ministry, worship Him as God, acknowledge Him in our prayer life? I tell you one story that I heard firsthand, and uh, Pastor John had gone to a church. It was a great church, a biblical church, a church that you would go to if you lived in that area of the country. And in MacArthur form, I don't know why he did it, but he got up in the pulpit and said, you know, I hear a lot in the singing about Jesus. It's good. A lot about the Father. But I didn't hear any songs about the Holy Spirit we should sing about him too. And he just moved on. I think I don't ever want him to come to my church and say that, or any church and say that. It's not a good <laughs> sign. If he, if he is absent from the worship service, the Holy Spirit, if he's absent from the songs we sing and from our teaching and our prayer life and our worship, then even if we've got right doctrine in many different ways, and even if we would consider ourselves theologically astute believers… It's a helpful reminder that we too also can form these blind spots in our spiritual lives where we don't spend enough time and give enough thought and enough care to each person of the Godhead. And so we ought to honor His ministry. It is 1012. You said I have till 1030. I will take, if I can, I don't mean to to just take over, if I could ask you to, to fire at me three or four questions, I could take open Q&A on this topic or anything. Yes, sir, if you'll tell me your name. Tom. Tom? Good to meet you, Tom. What's your question? During a given week, do I ever sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in a special way? Let me first say... Yes, and then don't run me out of here. I'm not going to be a crazy charismatic. Yes, sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in a special way. So, reading certain passages in Scripture, there can be a sense of conviction or comfort. I'll give you one. Uh, Just this morning, we spent a lot of time in the doctorate this last seven or eight days or nine days, whatever it's been, you lose track. Uh, meditating on the Old Testament and the Psalms in particular. So I've been kind of sitting in Psalm 90, the Psalm of Moses. And I was was reading this morning, I barely had my coffee, and we had five kids, and we had to switch places because last night it was 90 degrees in the place we were staying because the air conditioning broke. So around 8 p.m., you know, we moved. And so you got a lot of just sweaty daddy issues, you know, with the kids, and then I got to teach here and all that. And this morning, this peace and confidence and joy and love for the Lord and, and sense of, you could say it was very objective for me. It wasn't this like mystical thing. It was just this comfort, this assurance in God and who He is because of Psalm 90 overwhelmed my morning. I mean, I have people come to mind all the time in prayer. Our church members um, here, people that were teaching, um, praying for our church this morning. I probably had nine or ten names that popped into my head. I don't think that's like the Holy Spirit's talking to me. I don't think much about it. I kind of just, I pray for them. And they're coming to mind because I love them, and I'm one with them. We're in the body. So, There'll be other moments where driving down a particular street, even here in this area, I see a landmark, a restaurant that I went with someone to, or and, and that memory comes to mind, and I'll pray for them. But to me, that would... Yeah, strong sense to pray. Yes, usually... Yeah, usually in response to some, some aspect of the day. So, if I'm feeling convicted about something, that happens. Or if I remember in my mind that something's coming and I haven't prayed for that yet, I would say that if we're filled with the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, that that's going to happen all the time for the believer. And I, again, would would caution people from making it mystical because then we put a, we're we trying to put a power on it. I'm not saying you do this, Tom, but people will often say, you know, the, like let's say I came into staff meeting at our church or I came here and I said, you know, the Lord, I, I'm positive as I'm standing before you right now. This is what a lot of people do. The Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said, pray for Tom. And I knew in that moment I need to pray for Tom. I wouldn't, I wouldn't present it that way because... I get a lot of thoughts. I don't know whether today we'll go to Mendocino Farms or some other place to eat. <laughs> don't everyone go there, because then we won't get a sandwich. But <laughs> let's say I've got a strong urge to go to Mendocino. I want that farm club. And I end up there, and there's this person that comes up, and they're crying, or I end up praying for someone. and, and I, I can say after, oh, thanks, Lord. I guess I know why we ended up at Mendocino. But I don't, I don't try to spiritualize every urge. I just do what the Bible says. Just pray. And if the Lord works remarkably through that, hey, what a joy to be a little, just a little paint rush as he does what he wants. But we take no credit. I didn't, I don't know, there's no power or authority in that that we can then tell people. You know, I'm, I'm hearing from the Lord in my prayer life. Do what I'm doing. I, I do about the same things everyone else does. Wake up every morning and I probably change more diapers than some of you. But yes, ma'am. Hi, Hortensia. good question. So that's a really good question and an honest and a candid one. I'm glad you you asked that. I would caution, just lovingly, from adding too many human illustrations. It would be the same, and people do this, and I understand why. It doesn't mean that I think it's a great way to present things, but I understand why. People often say, You know why would God ever allow? It's always His will to heal. Because what kind of father would I? You think I ever want my kids sick? I would never want my kids sick. I would heal my kids. I want my children. A loving father would do that. So why would God the Father allow anyone to be sick? We need to believe and have faith. We need to pray and ask. And it's His will. He'll do it. What kind of father? He's a loving father. See what I've done there? Is I've personified God the Father in a way that I would describe my own human fathering. is very difficult to back that up theologically because God as a loving Father still does as He pleases, and we'd want to be careful putting things on Him because it makes better sense to us. So, I would stick to what Scripture says. He is a, a father in that sense, but to say He's like a police officer and He has His um, would you be describing that as like Christ and the Spirit and people are doing? I would, I would keep them uh, in authority in the police force, to just use your term. I, I wouldn't have the Father being sort of the, the general mastermind, and they're just sort of working. Now, Jesus does work the Father's will when He's on earth, and the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father, but I still think we could get into some choppy waters if I keep viewing the Lord and the Spirit as sort of the Father's workers. And now I maybe lower the emphasis I put on them as deity. And I'd want to see the Trinity as three in one. They have distinct roles and just embrace those as they are from the Godhead. Does that kind of help? Yeah. Okay. Sir, got 10 minutes, 11. Take every minute I can. Man, I stacked some treasure in heaven then because I got a good 27 years before <laughs> picking up a MacArthur commentary. <laughs> oh, brother, I, I, can't, I couldn't say yeah because I can't put myself in the shoes of God who is the judge and Christ who's been given authority to judge. I would say if I had a theological position on that, I would say that everything pre-conversion pre-regenerate state where the Spirit of God has taken over is not going to be counted against you. Of course, that's grace. Um, But I don't know that I I would look forward in heaven for rewards from certain things. If you said, well, what about all the times you fed the poor? What about the times you did things that were good and right? What about the money you gave? I would say the giving to the poor, even the world does that. Unbelievers do that. It's just civil virtue under the guise of a false Christ. The money part, I mean, that would be no reward there because you've given your treasure to uh, a heretic, a charlatan, and that money then funded further damning doctrines. So, uh, yeah, there's another category just because we're all friends here and family. Uh, One time I know of a story in which a particular individual uh, gave a donation to grace to you in the name of, uh, I think, in the name of either my uncle or my father. I don't know how that one works, but, you know, <laughs> I don't think you can, you can get rewards um, for that sort of thing. So, yes, ma'am. Yes, you. What's your name? My name is Melody. Hi, Melody. Oh, that's a great question. There is a book in Grace Books called The Holy Spirit. It's a kid's book. I would start there with the basics of children's literature by reputable authors. I would be careful. I don't mean to sound so, you know, raining on all the parades, but I would be careful of getting too clever, like doing the egg illustration or the ice water steam um, Don't try to make too much up too early. Stick to Scripture. Try to build a solid theological foundation so that the framework is built on the text. And then from there, if there is some illustration that helps, add that. Spurgeon called illustrations windows. So they're not spotlights. They're just little windows that shed a little bit of light. But the truth, if you never illustrated in a sermon or in your teaching, but you taught the truth and then you applied it that would be excellent for children but that's a good little book on the holy spirit that will be helpful yes ma'am yes like devoted into my signs and wonders and visions and prophecies yeah i've been trying to speak to them mm. about what i've been learning here and they keep saying you're just limiting god Yeah. Yep. Great question. She said she has friends in the charismatic movement who when she dialogues with them about these things, they tell her she's limiting God. She's been sharing all that she's learning and is being told, you're just limiting God. So what do you do with that? I typically, in those conversations with people with a loving tone, not World War III, um, will often say i got a question for you. Is it possible that God has presented Himself in a way that we can understand, and He is the one who, hang on to your your seat here, has limited Himself to His Word, meaning God could do whatever He wants. It doesn't mean that He's doing all of what you're experiencing. Is it possible also that the enemy could deceive people with false signs and wonders? I'm just asking, is it possible? I'm not saying that you're doing that. I'm not saying that you guys are all deceived. Just hang with me here. But is it possible? Well, yeah, and you, what you're doing is a lot of interrogative questioning. I usually try to say HMU, like, so help me understand this. I, I understand. You want to be, we want to be careful limiting God. But help me understand, can I, could I even limit God? Bible says in Psalm one fifteen three, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Like just not trying to be a Calvinist here. I'm just going to ask you a simple question, friend. Could God overrule me at any time if he wanted to? Like, couldn't he just shut me up, sit me down and do whatever he, like, how is me just going, well, I don't think tongues are that, or I'm not sure that we want to be falling all over or touching each other with the fire tunnels. How am I limiting a sovereignty? Honest question, talk to me. What are your thoughts? Because obviously you're in some sort of coffee, latte, sit down, lunch thing going on there. There's di- I would try to get into one of those dialogues and reason with them. And then Jude says, if you look at Jude 17 through 23, that section there, it says in one passage, have mercy on those who are doubting, and then save others, snatching them out of the fire. So that's like Coast Guard coming in hot. But then that first part, have mercy on those who are doubting. I've always described it this way. That is the person who is like, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I'll think about it. Then the next time they're like, hey, so I saw this Furtick sermon. You're like, oh no, here we go again. (laughs) And then the next time they're like, hey, that article you sent me from grace to you, I see what he's saying. You know, I don't like the way way MacArthur says things sometimes, but (laughs) have mercy on those who are doubting. The longer you can keep that going, the Lord's working through that. So, do I have time for one more? Or are you vetoing me? I s- submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let me pray for you, and we'll be Spirit-filled as we depart. Father, thank You for this group. Thank You for Your Word. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank You for Your work. Help us to understand it all the more that we might glory in Christ and bless our worship here and now as we go to the various places we will. We praise You. And we want to honor your work and your word. In Jesus' name we ask and pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, guys.